Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, please. You'll find that on page 1507 in your book rack Bible. We begin a brand new section in the book of Matthew. We're finishing the Sermon on the Mount. And just as a reminder to you, those of you that are interested in knowing a little bit of context to the book of Matthew, Matthew is written basically in a series of narratives and discourses. Do you remember that when we started this series back in December? It starts with the narrative. When we talk about narrative, we talk about the works of Jesus. When we talk about discourse, we talk about the words of Jesus. So we just finished a huge section of the words of Jesus, the discourse section of the Sermon on the Mount. And today we're back into now a new section, chapters 8 and 9, that are narrative sections. And in the narrative, we look at the works of Jesus. And keep in mind that Matthew's intent is to show Jesus to be the one true Messiah to the Jews. At the time of Matthew's writing, there were many that were stepping up saying that they were the Messiah. There were several that were very popularized as self-proclaimed Messiahs, but Matthew wants his readers to know that Jesus does more than proclaim himself as Messiah. He is because he proves it. And in this section that we're looking at, we're looking at the proof of his Messiahship in the power that he has, the power to do miracles. We're in a section where every part of the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the miracles of Christ. And this is the first miracle that Matthew records. Now, we know it's not the first miracle that Jesus performed, but it's the first miracle that Matthew performs. And it's a, it's a powerful uh, little section. We're going to look just at verses 1 through 4 of Matthew 8. So follow along and let's just see what the Lord has for us today in this theme of Jesus is willing. When he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. We'll stop right there. Well, this is an interesting narrative. Uh, It shows us the works of Christ and this amazing miracle that happens in the life of this no-name man. We never know his name. We don't really know anything about him but the fact that he was a leper. Uh, The thing that grabs me right out of this text to begin with is that there are large crowds following Jesus. Remember, he's coming down off the mountain, the Sermon on the Mount, and all these people are gathered around Jesus as as he comes down off this mountain. And as I look at what unfolds before us here today, I, I see three things, three movements in this text that I think are really powerful. And the first one I want you to see comes right out of verses one and two in, the, in that, that in every crowd there are those who are desperate for what only God can do for them. And that might be you. It might be the person sitting next to you this morning. Maybe we don't talk about it much, but everybody, everywhere, has moments of desperation I know farmers who are desperate for rain. I know parents who are desperate for their children to make a change. I know some wives that are desperate for their husbands to become spiritual leaders. and I know some husbands that are desperate for their wives to come back to the Lord. I know business owners who are desperate for a better economy. or I know people that are desperate in all kinds of situations. I know people who are hooked on some kind of drug 
or addiction and they're desperate for some kind of change that they've never been able to experience before. Desperation hits all of us. Maybe you're desperate this morning and the reality is someone has aptly said that we all live with sort of a quiet desperation and we smother it or we disguise it with smiles and busyness in life but Deep down inside, there's probably levels of desperation in each one of us. And that's the first thing I see, that in every crowd, we're a crowd this morning. There's a lot of people here. And in every crowd, there are people that are desperate for what only God can do. Now, we may not know what it's like to be a leper, but we're likely to know what it means to be desperate. And that's the point. And this leper, he knew desperation. Boy, did he. Now, leprosy has been eradicated from many parts of the modern world they estimate there's about 200,000 people still living with leprosy as a condition. And before the days of medicine and the knowledge of how leprosy was spread and before the days of cure and, and ways to treat leprosy, as we now call Hansen's disease, uh, lepers were quarantined. They were sent away because it was feared that if you touched a leper that you would receive leprosy yourself. Leprosy is a, is a chronic infection caused by a bacteria that is usually spread among those who live in extreme poverty. It's spread between people. It's believed to occur through a cough or contact with fluid from the nose of an infected person. And while it's been eradicated from most parts of the world, still some people suffer from it. But in the days that Jesus was walking this earth, Uh, If you had leprosy, you were an outcast, you were an untouchable, you were a person that was literally destined to live alone for the rest of your life. And I don't know about you, but when you think about uh, what it might be like for this person and how it started in his life, he woke up one day, this man in Matthew chapter 8, and noticed kind of a rash on his skin. And he did what Leviticus 14 told him to do. He went to the priest to have it checked out because of the fear of how skin disease would spread. And the priest would examine his rash and tell him that he was ceremonially unclean and he had to be outside of the camp for a period of seven days and treat whatever way he could in this skin rash disease. And he would come back in seven days and report to the priest. And the priest would say, well, you're either better or you're not. And if you weren't better, you were sent back out for seven more days, and this continued on and on until finally you were diagnosed as a chronic condition. You would no longer ever be entering back into your home and your family. Can you imagine never being with your family, never being with your wife, your husband, never being with your children again because of this chronic skin disease that you might have? And the thing that strikes me here in all of this is that This desperation that we look at, if we drill down into it, I think we can find that it usually stems from a sense of alienation. And we see this right here in this man's experience. Now, I see this in the text when he asks Jesus a question. He says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Did you notice he doesn't say you could heal me? He wants to be clean. He wants to Beyond the physical reality of his condition, he wants to be home. He wants to be with people again. He's an isolated outcast. You know, a few years ago, I think I've told this story before, but I, I did a lot of youth ministry in my earlier days in the pastorate, and, and so I was out in the sun all the time, water skiing, snow skiing, and back in the day, you know, you didn't have sunscreen like you have today, and so I, I burned up all the time. 
And I have a lot of skin damage. And I remember once my dermatologist said, man, you know, he, as he burns off a number of things on my face, he says, look, if you really want to deal with this, you should just get this cream, uh, chemo cream that I can prescribe to you and just put it all over your face and it'll take away the problem. I mean, it'll, it'll literally peel your entire face off. I said, that'll take care of it? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, I'm in. So I, I got this cream and I put it on my face and I, everything was fine for about a week. And then in the second week of putting this stuff on, I just, my whole face just exploded with scabs and redness. And I mean, it was a sight. My family didn't even want to be with me in public. It was, it was a crazy, and I kind of got a little sense. I would be in a public place and I could just see people kind of stop and look at me. Suddenly I kind of, started empathizing with people who have conditions that are very obvious and sometimes difficult for people. And I mean, that was just such a simple little thing. But in my you know, world, it sort of pointed to the fact that there are people with things like that that live their entire lives. It really, it really struck me. Um, alienation is something that, that all of us experience. And alienation Usually, if you really drill down to it, we feel like it comes that we're alienated from God when we're in desperate situations. I mean, think about this. The priest who represents the people of God has essentially said to this man, you need to go away. You're not welcome in community anymore. You must now live separated, lonely, remotely. You need to leave. Can you imagine how that would feel? I mean, we usually, if we feel alienated from God, we'd say, well, either we assume God doesn't care because if he did, he wouldn't allow me to be in this situation, or maybe it's the choices and actions of my own life that make me alienated from God. Either way, in my desperate moments, I can feel alienated from God. And in a crowd this size, there are people that are desperate here today who feel alienated from God. God doesn't care enough. God doesn't love enough. I mean, if he did, he wouldn't have allowed me to go through the situation and why am I still here, and why am I still struggling, or I've made some terrible choices in my life, and because of those choices, I know God could never accept me. That's a poor understanding of the gospel. If you're here struggling with that this morning, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, and you've fallen and made some big mistakes in your life, whatever you've done in your life, know this, it is the work of Christ at the cross that approves you, not your own work. And the gospel declares you innocent and, and, and free from all guilt and shame in Christ. Place your faith in Christ and you are completely forgiven and completely approved by God. And yet we still stumble and fall, but that doesn't change the beautiful relationship that God has begun in our lives as Christ followers. But some of us still feel that way. We feel alienated from God. God could never love me. God could never accept me the way I am. Look at what I've done with my life. I've messed up. And that alienation that we feel with God can flow out into others too. I know people that feel alienated from their family, alienated from the church because of either choices they've made as Christ followers or at this point in their life, not coming yet to a place of faith, but there's an alienation, there's a separation. When we feel it with God, it, it flows into our relationships with people around us. But, and so that's the reality of desperation, desperate people. We feel alienated from God and others. But there's something good about desperation. And I see that in the text too. Because sometimes it's the desperation that we experience that actually leads us to God. I want you to write that down. Desperation is often what finally brings us to God. Did it bring you to God? 
Chances are it did. Now here's this desperate person, and he's making his way to Jesus, all these people around, and I, I, I kind of feel like that maybe this guy had sort of an advantage to get into the presence of God, because he was a leper, and if you were a leper, if you were in a public area, if you weren't in your quarantined area, you literally had to announce to the people that you were unclean. You had to walk through the streets saying, unclean, unclean. So people could just get away from you for fear that they would contract the disease. So you can imagine this leper coming to Jesus. I mean, he knows there's something about Jesus that's different. So he comes to Jesus, and he's probably going, unclean, unclean. And the people are peeling back like the Red Sea. Because nobody wants to get around this guy. And he's just given like this beautiful entryway right into the, to the presence of, of the Lord Jesus. And it's interesting, Matthew tells us that as he comes to Jesus, he knelt before him. Some of your translations use the word worship. It's not an easy word to translate. But it clearly shows that this man has a reverent approach. He knew something about Jesus that many people in the crowd didn't. Jesus was no ordinary man. He was not someone with just magical powers, but someone far important than that. It seems that this man knows something really insightful about Jesus because he even calls him Lord, Kyrios in the Greek. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that anybody has called Jesus Lord. Matthew makes a point of that. It is not accidental. The word Kyrios means master, captain, savior. Now, as this man comes to Jesus, his desperation brings you know, brings him into the presence of God. There's two things that I see in this man's plea when he comes to Jesus. First, I see hope that God is able to help him. I mean, when we're in desperate moments, what brings us to God is a sense that, hey, God, you're God. You could do something about this. I mean, I know you can help me. That's why I'm here. Some of you are here today because you believe that there's nobody else that can help you but God himself. So you're here today. And that's you, if you're desperate and you're here checking things out, you're saying, I know there's a God. I know God is, is not like any person around. I know he's not a figment of our imagination. I know he's real, and if he's real, he can do something. I'm here. God, I need you. If that's your desperate cry today, you're really right on the track because God is able. But there's also something I see in this man's plea, not only knowing that God is able, he says, Lord, if you're willing there's a question of whether or not this God who is able will actually do something. Notice his question. He says, Lord, if you are willing. There's something in the Greek text that, I, that points me to this principle. In the Greek text, there's three ways of asking a question. There's a first class condition which says something like this. Lord, if you are willing and I know you are. That's one way to ask it. He does not use the first class condition. There's another way of asking. Lord, if you are willing, and I know you're not, that's a second class condition. By the way, biblical example, first class condition, Philippians chapter two, verse one. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, that's first class condition, the if-then clause. Second class, if there is, but there isn't. Third class, this is the way this gentleman asked the question, if you are willing, and Lord, I just am not sure. I'm just not sure. It sort of bears the reality of a person's heart when he comes into the presence of the Lord. 
this third class condition, the determination has not yet been seen. What is Jesus going to do? He really doesn't know. In fact, there's a shroud. He's not discounted it. He's not saying, Lord, if you're willing and I know you're not. He's saying, Lord, if you're willing and I just, the doubt of my heart is just big and huge and I just don't know what you're going to do. Some of us know exactly what that feels like. So the question comes, is God really able or not? And this is what this man's question is. If, if you are willing, Lord, you can make me clean. Now the next big movement I see here in this text where I think it really gets exciting is that anyone who comes to Jesus for what only he can do learns really quickly just how willing he is. And do you notice what, how Jesus responds to him? Verse three, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. I want you to see two ways that we see the willingness of Jesus here. First of all, his willingness is demonstrated in his, uh, in his compassion for this man. Uh, notice that Jesus reaches out and touches the man. Wait, what, what? He touches a leper. Sometimes we think we're so unclean before the Lord. And there are people that stay out of church just for that very reason. But I think this is very beautiful because the unclean person is being top, touched by the clean person. The clean person isn't affected by the unclean person. Jesus is not affected by this man's leprosy. He is not affected by your terrible decisions. He's not affected by your sinfulness. He's not affected by your depravity. His touch in your life make all the difference in the world. And his touch is a picture of compassion. It's amazing how a loving touch can mean so much in a desperate moment, isn't it? I remember when my father passed away, my mother passed away first and my father passed away about nine years ago. And I remember going across the San Mateo Bridge on my way to his house where he lived and I knew he was already gone. The, I talked to the police officer on scene and said that he had expired and so I was coming over there to sort of take care of business. And of course I'm weeping as I'm driving and I'm praying and I'm thanking God for my father who's a great man. And I get to the house, it's still emotional. There's a woman who lived across the street whose son I played with growing up and she was standing in the driveway. And I remember parking my car and getting out and she just came up to me and she just put her hand around my shoulder. I've known her all my life. And she said, Larry, I am so sorry. That's all she could say. But I felt, I felt the presence of Jesus. I felt like it was his arms. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be emotional, but it still kind of comes back. And you've had the same experience, perhaps, where a loving touch in a desperate moment. I love our Cross Streets workers. Man, I love those guys. And a few times I've been out with them. I need to go out with them more because it just reminds me every time the beauty of non-sexual human touch. Sitting under an overpass in downtown Oakland at two in the morning, and people coming out of the shadows for a pair of socks or a, a warm meal. And how they look forward more than all of those things that we would bring is the touch of somebody. Put their hands on them, their arms around them, to pray over them, to feel the presence of Jesus. And people would often say, thank you so much. I look forward to seeing you more than anything else in my week because whenever you come, I feel the presence of the Lord. 
Amazing things happen when we just appropriately touch people. I, I serve as a chaplain in the fire department, local fire department, and I've been in scenes where it's, it's just, you know, the carnage of a, a loss of a loved one. Here's a little lady sitting on the bedside, two in the morning, her husband's expired. There's still intubation tubes and wrappers from the medic's bag still on the floor, and everybody's sort of cleaning up around the house, and here's a woman in her pain a chaplain shows up and offers to pray and putting my hand on her back so often, whether it's a male or a female whose loved one has passed, so often there's just a melting in, a sense of someone cares, someone loves me. And I believe that God uses those kinds of touch to touch the hearts of people himself. You, you might be here this morning and without even someone touching you, and I don't want to make anybody nervous right now because so I'm not going to ask anybody to touch anybody this morning. But without anybody touching you, you might feel the touch of the Lord Jesus Christ on your heart. I mean, a literal touch. Like God has met you in your desperation and come to you and reminded you of his compassion this morning. This is how Jesus has evidenced uh, how willing he is by demonstrating compassion. But there's something else I see here. His willingness is also demonstrated not just through compassion, but through his power. He says, I am willing, be clean. And notice, immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Wow. Jesus' touch, write this down. It's not on the screen. Jesus' touch is not just comforting, it's transformational. Jesus doesn't want to just touch you to give you an emotional goose bump. He wants you to be transformed. That's why he touches you. That's why he meets you. That's why he comes to you in your moment of desperation, no matter who you are, no matter how old you are or young you are. And this leper was immediately healed of his leprosy. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, well, wait a minute, Pastor Larry, I know the compassion of Jesus, but I've prayed for the Lord to heal my husband's cancer, and he passed How is this revealing his power? We all go through those kinds of things, but I want to remind you that his power is not demonstrated only in giving us what we ask for. Sometimes it's giving us even more. Like perseverance. Like character shaping. I don't know. God does amazing things in his power, but his power is not limited to the the desire of my own heart. His glory is far too great. And... Let's throw this in to make sure we get all this clear. No matter what our malady is or what we've prayed for, someday it will all be healed. Every limb restored, every sight restored, everything restored. Because to be absent of the body is to be home with the Lord. God is going to heal all of us. There's a healing coming. There's a big healing coming. So don't get too upset at this point in life because remember, I have to remind myself all the time, this is not heaven. This is not a perfect world. Have you noticed that? We are not living in heaven, and sometimes we want heaven to be our experience all the time. And it it will not be, but God will do great things in the midst of that. He will bring us power uh, to persevere. He will give us power to be patient. He will be power to testify and witness of his goodness, that his grace is sufficient even in our weakness. And I, and I love this because the gospel is nestled just so tightly into this story, isn't it? 
Because we too are like this leper that needs to be healed. We too have been sent out. Our sin has made us leprous and loathsome. We are cursed and have been sent away. We are alienated from God, which has created alienation from others. In short, we are broken, and we have brought brokenness into the lives of those around us. And is Jesus able to cleanse us and make us whole again? Absolutely. And is he willing? You bet. But the real question is, will we come to him? He's willing, but will we come? I know so many people that have such great need in their life, not the least of which is a need for a relationship with the living God, and yet they will not come to Jesus. It shows the desperation of our own hearts, how dark it becomes for our lives. Make no mistake, as great as the miracle of Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4 is with this leprous man, the greater miracle occurred when we came to trust in Jesus Christ, when we crossed from death into life by faith in Jesus Christ. Have you? This morning, it's a great question. There's no power greater than the power of God unto salvation for anyone who believes. I don't know of any power greater than that. So that's basically the two big things I see in this text. But there's something here that we can't leave. If we did, we would not be servicing the entire text. Verse 4. There's purpose behind the work that Jesus does. And I want you to see this in verse 4. There's purpose behind the work that Jesus does. And two things in particular. There's maybe more, but I've, two things that I see. First of all, I see that one purpose is to remove our sense of alienation and replace it with a sense of belonging. Can you believe this man was given the opportunity to worship with God's people again and go back home to his family? Jesus performed a miracle through physical healing, but he sets this guy to go back to the people he loved and to worship among the people that loved his God. God loves to remove our sense of alienation. And you know how he does this? He does this through, write it down, community. He does this through community. You know, here at Three Crosses, we talk a lot about community. We say our process is really simple. It starts with, say it with me, worship, and it goes to community, and then on to service. Very good. Most of you have that. We say it all the time. We talk about it until our, you know, until we're blue in the face sometimes. But do you see it right here? Do you see the importance of community to the, to the heart of Jesus? What does he do? He says, go to the priest. And why he does this is because Levit- Leviticus 14 says that until he went to the priest and got clearance, he couldn't go home. So Jesus says, here, I'm setting it up so you can actually go to the priest, you can get cleared so that you can go home. And the reason why Jesus does that is he knows that community affirms two things. It affirms our belonging to God and affirms our belonging to others. Community is huge in the mind of God. I know some of us, in a crowd this size, some of us, we love worship, we love what the church offers to us, we love coming in the big setting like this, and it's okay, that's great, but we've not taken the next step into community. Some of us, we go AWOL at the end of a service. We're not connected in small groups, we're not, nobody really knows us, we're like these little isolated Christ followers, and, you know, uh, um, I just feel for people like that because you're missing out on a huge part of the blessing of God in your life. He wants to put people around you that can help you and support you and encourage you. And I I get it. Some of us are burned because churches can be weird. Christ followers can be weird. 
Pastors can be weird. I get it. But don't let that keep you from, don't let any of those things keep you from pursuing community because God restores our sense of alienation in community. That's where we realize we belong to God and we belong to each other. And the last thing I see here is that there's a purpose in being a witness to others of what God has done in our lives. Um, he says to this guy, now don't tell anyone about what I've done. Now some of you look at that and you go, oh, that's awesome. I love that. I mean, when God does something in my life, I would love to be quiet about that. I never have to tell anybody. Because I know it's scary sometimes to kind of let people know what God's doing in your life. What is Jesus doing here? Why does Jesus not want this guy to sort of blow the lid off on what he's done? It's because Jesus knows his mission, right? And he's going to the cross. And and it's just going to make things worse, watch this, when he gets a reputation that he's this magical miracle worker that whenever a crowd shows up, all you do is bring the people that have problems and they're all fixed. That's going to really impede the mission of Jesus, because it's only going to escalate the hatred of the Jewish leaders toward Jesus and it's always going to, only going to compel the leaders to put him to death. And Jesus, he had a schedule and according to the Gospel of John, Jesus was right on that schedule. He did not entrust his heart to any man because he knew it was in the heart of men. So Jesus is sort of putting the muffler on this guy because he's not doing him a favor. But the book of Mark in his account of this story says that the guy went out and told Everybody. Well, Jesus probably knew that that would be the case anyway. This guy disobeyed the Lord. God still loved him. But he wanted this man to have a testimony specifically with the, with the leaders, the Jewish leaders. He says, go to the priest, and look at, look at the end of verse 4, as a testimony to them. In the Greek language, ace martyrios autois, could be translated as a testimony against them, or as a testimony to them. Maybe it's a little of both. The Jewish leaders were skeptics. They said, ah, this Jesus, he's a maverick. He's not the real deal. Jesus says, look, I've done an amazing miracle here. I want you to go and I don't want you to blab it to everybody on the planet. I just want you to go to the priests. They're the ones that are skeptical of who I am. There's people in our lives that need to hear the testimony of our transformation. Maybe not everybody all at once, but there are people. This past week, I took a little motorcycle trip with a few of the buddies, a few of my buddies from the church, and we went through the state of Utah on dirt roads. It was amazing. We were up at 10,000 feet and down, but every place we camped, there were people around us, and every place we were camping, we had an opportunity to just share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to pray over people. It was beautiful. It sort of reminded me on the last day when a, a guy by the name of Stu, he was the camp host, and he was somehow brought into our camp by the Holy Spirit. We got to share stories, and Randolph, my buddy, stood up with his big voice after this man shared a little bit of his life and just shared his testimony, just shared what God had done in his life. And then we prayed for Stu. And Stu was weeping at the end of the prayer, and he said, man, I don't know what all this means, but thank you so much. Who needs to hear your story? Who needs to know you've been transformed? Is Jesus willing? You bet he is. If you come to him, if you've come to him, he wants to show you his compassion, 
and his power for the purpose of sharing with others just how good he is. Amen? Let's go to the Lord.